nations, extol him all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. So let's do that together. Why don't you stand and we'll sing hymn number 292. seated everyone just a couple announcements just reminders from this morning uh, choir practice will begin again on august 20th at 6 30 p.m with anthems for sunday mornings beginning again on september 8th uh, the quarterly business meeting will be held wednesday august 14th at 6 30 that's a week from this wednesday all members are urged to attend also teenagers We'll be having, again, the oxymoron back-to-school party on my birthday, August 16th. So hopefully what you'll be doing is making a present for me at the back-to-school party on August 16th at 7 p.m. And make sure you talk to me first because if you make something for me or give me something that I don't like, then I have to come to you for the receipt and it's awkward. So just make sure you talk with me before that. The evening will include games, food, and a devotional. Weather permitting, you'll be... Outside And finally, the flower committee is in need of vases or vases, depending on how pretentious you are, with a four to five inch opening. If you have any you're willing to donate, you may leave them in the office. They could also use volunteers to help deliver flowers. Uh, but you don't have, oh, by the way, they want you to, you don't have to go alone. There's always help. Uh, so if you'd be interested in helping with the flowers, please see Brenda Cramrick uh, for that. So those are the announcements. Let's go ahead and take our evening offering. Ushers, if you'll come, we'll have our offering.
Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your grace towards us that is unending and free and sufficient. Father, we praise you so much for all that you have given to us. And so, Father, because of your gift, you love a cheerful giver. And uh, we are able to give, Father, because you've provided everything for us. We lack nothing, no matter what we have or do not. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for this offering, Father. We ask that you would use every penny for your glory, for your name, for your church, for Moundsville, Father, for our community here in the Ohio Valley, Lord. And may you be exalted in all things, we ask and pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. If you have your Bible with you tonight, you'd like to turn to the 13th chapter of Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. It's extremely hard not to judge people by what we see with our eyes. Isn't it? I mean, how else can you judge? Judging others by appearances is not only normal, it's natural. That's one of the at least practical reasons why in John chapter 7, our Lord Jesus tells those listening to him not to judge by appearances, but to judge with right judgment. So that the Bible, when Jesus commands do not judge, it's, it's not that judging is completely out of the picture it's that he doesn't want us to judge by appearances he says but to judge with right judgment which means among other things that judging by appearances does not lead to right judgment do we hear that when he's telling us that that the two that judging by appearances and judging correctly are diametrically opposed to one another judging with right judgment rather than by appearances however is not Natural. It's not instinctive. The natural eye is insufficient to see the whole truth. Right? One of the reasons we are not to judge by appearances is because what can be seen does not reveal everything. It doesn't reveal normally the whole truth. Jesus Christ ushered the kingdom of God into this world. Right? That's when, when we're talking through these parables over these next couple weeks, that's the implications of that fact that Jesus brought the kingdom of God into this world, invaded this world with his kingdom, the implications of that are part of the reason for his parables. His coming, his work, and his victory changed reality. The new age invaded the old age. Jesus Christ has won. The ruler of this world, in a very real sense, has been cast out. As he said, Jesus is reigning as we speak. He is seated at the right hand of God, regardless of the fact that it doesn't look like that, based on what we can see with our eyes. There is still evil. There is still sin. There is still suffering. The last 24 to 48 hours show this to us again, unfortunately, and again. There is still rebellion. And, so that's all happening, and... His people, those that believe on Him, are forgiven. They're justified. They're righteous. They will have eternal life. They belong to Him, even though they may not always look the part. What Jesus Christ has accomplished is almost unfathomable in its scope, in its ultimate effect on people, but that isn't always visible. That's why we read unbelievable things in the New Testament text like Second Peter 2, 7 and 8, 
He says, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. We're told there three times, not without reason, three times in those verses that Lot was righteous. We're talking about Lot. Lot lived downtown, so to speak, in the most wicked city in the world. So wicked that God literally rained down fire and brimstone on it. He delayed when God sent angels to get him out. Before that happened, he offered his own daughters up to perverted men banging on his front door. Right? Realize how awful that is? How disgusting that is? When he finally did get out of town, one of the first things he did was get so drunk he was manipulated into impregnating both of his daughters. How in the world is this man righteous? Remember, if the Bible was a movie, it would be rated R. It's amazing and tragic some of the things we read in. How in the world is a man like that considered righteous? I mean, we know that David, for example, was a man after God's own heart. But the text also says that he would do all God's will. Really, all God's will. David had some amazing victories. He wrote most of the Psalms. Israel prospered on his rule, really reached its apex under David and his son Solomon. But there was also adultery, murder, disobedience, family uprisings, all his will. David would do all his will. But when you lay Jesus down across history, that's when the truth about people actually comes out. Beloved, if we're just looking with the eye, there are times when even the people of God will just look like weeds. For many in the scriptures, most of their narrative is them living like their weeds. Lot, David, Samson, much of Abraham's life, Noah's life at the, you know, the second part, if we're just looking, right? Because we judge by appearances, because we struggle in our own hearts with self-righteousness or zeal that isn't informed by the knowledge of God, We want to pick up the scythe and we want to reap. We want to reap. We want there to be vengeance. We want to fight for God. The problem is it's based mainly on what we can see. But the reality of the kingdom of God breaking into this world in Jesus Christ means we don't want to be, need to be. We don't need to be zealous for judgment. Rather, we must be zealous for mercy. God will reveal and handle the rest. He has Jesus Christ in his corner. And beloved, so do you and I. So let me read Matthew 13. I'm going to read verses 24 through 30. He, Jesus, put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seeds in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you once again for your word. I thank you, Lord, for everyone that is able to be here tonight. I pray, Father, that you would watch over my mind as I preach. Lord, keep me in your word. Keep me from saying more than the text says. Father, I pray that you would help me. Please watch over everyone who listens, everyone that's in this room tonight, regardless of their age. Father, please help everyone hear and believe your perfect word about your son. This we ask in his name. Amen. Martin Luther said that the people of God, the church, are those who rely on nothing else than God's grace and mercy. That was his description of who the church is. I wonder what it is that that tends to make us almost obsessed with whether or not someone is really saved. We talk about this so much. We have an almost unhealthy obsession with the idea of false converts. We wonder... We wonder that about others rather often, and we make that judgment pretty easily, pretty pretty quickly relative to eternity. The minute we see something in them that we don't agree with, something that directs us, you know, uh, directly affects us negatively, we, you know, I, I think he or she might not actually be saved, right? Based almost 100% off their actions or something they said in a given moment or something, because, you know, we have the flip side of that that, that you will know them, you, you will know false teachers by their fruit, you, you know, and we, we have it in our heads that we can, we have the eye to understand where somebody really is just by what we've seen, right, what we've heard with our ears. So at least to some extent, the, the, the disciples were like this. Jesus is rejected and uh, not believed upon, and, and, and they say, Lord, do you want us to call down fire on these people? Do you want us to call it down and you just burn everybody up? And Jesus basically says, what, what is wrong with you, right? But at least to some extent, we're like the servants of the master in this parable. We run around trying to identify weeds in the church, gather them together, throw them out. We weigh each other's words and actions. I mean, in Ephesians 5.27, the church is supposed to be without spot or wrinkle, so we take the task of cleansing it on ourselves and if we find a spot or a wrinkle, we want to instantly run a hot iron over it, smooth it out. And we might mean well when we do that. We might believe that we're doing the church a great service. But Jesus knows that we are prone to this. And I think that that's at least part of the reason for this parable, is, is, is what he knows about us. Beloved, make no mistake. False converts do exist. Absolutely. That's part of what the parable absolutely reveals there are weeds in the kingdom no question not everyone that claims the name of christ belongs to him not everyone that says lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven so the point of this parable is not well there's no such thing as false converts in the church so it's a moot point nothing to see here no there are weeds among the wheat absolutely and at least part of the reason for that is that satan the enemy is as devious and calculating as he is evil So he has sown weeds among the wheat. Jesus has sown wheat into his field. Satan has come and sown weeds. And this is where it gets interesting because I I, I don't think the point of this parable is that the devil has secretly planted people in our churches and so we need to be on the lookout. I don't think that's the primary function of the parable. We would should want to be slow to label somebody the seed of Satan because they're difficult. Right, that that would be that would be a bit of a jump to say you must be one of the ones that Satan sowed in here. That's a huge accusation. 
This parable is not here, at least again, I, I don't believe so, to make us skeptical and sus- suspicious of one another. I don't think that's what it's doing. That's a recipe for self-righteous judgment, which we know is sinful. We know it doesn't honor God. We don't need any help finding reasons to reject our brothers and sisters. We already do that naturally for a number of reasons, unfortunately. So if we make the devil the focus of the story, we're going to come away feeling we don't only have the right, but the responsibility to weed people out. Like we're being called to a task in this parable. We're we're, we're not. And that will also make us prone to try to make sure that we look like wheat ourselves then. It will put all the focus back on us. It will take all the focus off of Christ because if we are on the prowl for weeds, we're going to assume others are too. Right? Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It is always crouching at the door. The desire to look better or more Christian than we might actually be. And part of that is self-preservation because there are people out there scoping out everybody to see whether or not they belong. God has ways and means of revealing that in the everyday life of the church. But we have to recognize our own tendency towards being that leaven that he warned about or it will make us obsessed with everyone else's badness and obsessed with our own goodness, our rightness, their wrongness. And when we compare ourselves, we always come out on top. Right? We always come out better than the person we're comparing ourselves to. But as David Zoll says, when we keep score, we always lose. I think he's right. It's true that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that hasn't kept us from comparing distances. It is in our nature to approve ourselves and disapprove of others. It's hurtful to the church. And beloved, if we're honest, everywhere we look we see sinners. They're, they're all around us. We are one of them. That's why we know so well how to recognize them. So how arrogant and presumptuous do we have to be to believe that we can corner the market on how to sufficiently and accurately weed someone out? Right? All of us who confess that Jesus Christ lived a perfect life in our place went to the cross then to die in our place and then rose again on the third day and have been freely justified by His grace as a gift and believe on Him. Everybody that believes those things, that that has happened to, are still sinners. Faith is what makes someone a Christian, not sinlessness. I read that the difference between the sinner who believes and the sinner who doesn't is in the believing, not in the sinning. Let me say that again. The difference between the sinner who believes and the sinner who doesn't is in the believing, not in the sinning. We are simultaneously in this world justified, those who believe, justified, fully accepted by God, and sinner. Now we know that's not an invitation to go out and sin because who cares? It's that we're going to go out and sin and He is going to keep us. He's going to do it. It's a statement of fact about our present state in this world. This is Romans 7 talk. Right? This is where we live. It's not going to go away in this world. The good that I want to do, I can't do it. The bad that I don't want to do, I keep doing it. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus Christ the righteous. That, that, that's the only salvation. That's the only hope. So there are both outwardly righteous idolaters, right? And then there are dirty Christians in the world, outward examination with the eye, 
will not provide the distinctions necessary to tell the difference between wheat and weeds. But that's okay, because Jesus doesn't say the primary problem in the church is weeds who look like wheat. Right? He's not saying that. That is not why he tells the servants not to gather them up. Jesus, then, is not as petrified about weeds among the wheat as we are. The reason he gives for telling us not to gather up the weeds is because we cannot be trusted not to throw out rough-looking wheat that's among the seeds. Who knows better than Jesus that wheat can look a whole lot like weeds if we judge it before the final harvest? Only his reapers can be tasked with this, not us. I think those are angels here at the end. Our, our obsession with keeping the church pure and clean for God, that, that's not the mission we've been called to, right? With keeping out the riffraff. It's, it's disobedience to Galatians 6.1 for one thing. It's an outright rejection of the fact that we all look like weeds sometimes. We all are going to look like weeds sometimes. Would you, would you want me judging the quality of your faith on your worst moment? On your worst day? To just make a categorical pronouncement about you because you're in the thick of it in your life. Or you're going through a hard time or you're, you're just, you're weak at this moment and you're struggling. Would you want me judging you on a weak moment? Would you want me judging you, anyone judging you in the middle of a trial? Probably not. Just like I hope you wouldn't judge me in those times. We've all had days, months, years, maybe even decades where things are not going well for us. Who has the insight to quantify whether or not I'm saved based on those things? Do we realize how subjective that would become, right? You, you know, you, you, you can struggle and wander for a couple weeks, you know, maybe a few months, maybe in an extreme case a year or so, but that's it. Then all the promises of salvation are void. Okay, so you figured out it's a year is how long you can struggle before it means now you're not, you're not real. How did you come to that, right? Really, I, I think you can go two years. All right, someone else would say, yeah, I, I think you can only go three weeks. Right. What is the parable revealing? It is revealing precisely that we do not have the ability to pull up weeds without damaging wheat. So it would be best for us to focus on Christ and trust that He will do the work He's promised to do. We've not been sent on mission to purge the field of weeds. That is not our commission. We, we should be careful making it our aim. And I'm not saying this is our aim. Just, just, this is just a, a, a preemptive Warning, right? We should be careful making it our aim to be just purer than the church before us. We'll get it right. Our forefathers got it wrong. It's so easy to look back in the past and point out the, the sins and the mistakes of others. And it's so easy outside of a conflict to see, well, you should have done this and that would have solved that. And that's so easy to look back and see all of that. I, I, but I, I read that all the time. We need, the church needs another reformation. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, I've said that, I, I, and I think probably, yeah, but not because we'll finally get it right. We'll be the generation that nails it and dots all the I's and crosses all the T's. Like, like we'll be able to finally, after all this time, create the church that will have less drunk people in it and less lust in it and less divorce and every other easily identifiable sin. 
Beloved, the church has been trying to do that. It's been trying to do that. It's been ignoring Jesus' words here for hundreds of years, which is, if we're honest, precisely why the church is filled with so many self-deceived, self-righteous hypocrites, right? It, it's, it's easy to bash the world, you know, because they say, oh, I don't want to go to church. It's, it's filled with hypocrites. Yeah, okay, that's a weak... I do believe that's a, that's a weak accusation. It, it doesn't hold water. It's not consistent, right? It's not consistent. But... Where did that stereotype... Stereotypes are normally based on some type of identifiable factor, right? Something had to happen for you to make a sweeping generalization. Because we've championed good works for so long and behavior for so long, and we never live up to the standard, that, yeah, it's going to look like it's just a place for people that talk big and righteous but don't live it out. If the focus was Christ dying for sinners... What would they have to criticize? Right? If the church made its identity, look, we, we don't really know anything, right? We, we just know that Christ is, is the only way to salvation because He had mercy on me. He saved me and I still struggle and still am, am trying to understand things and I still have questions. And again, not because doubt is necessarily a virtue, but, but just to act like you've cornered the market sets us up to be labeled as hypocrites because we'll fall. We'll mess up. So if we're constantly talking about ourselves and what we do and how we should behave and what is right to do and we constantly fall short of it, what other accusation could be made? I mean, what other conclusion could the world come to? So we don't champion ourselves. We don't talk about ourselves. We don't preach us and us improved. We preach Christ and Christ crucified. There's a major difference. A major difference. When, when, when we, when we're the focus and not Christ, not the gospel, it, 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 it can't, it, of course it's going to blow up in our faces. Right? And, and there, there are churches that are led by congregations filled with people that aren't there passionate for the name and renown of Christ. They love the building. They love the tradition. And so they run it and they care nothing for holiness. Nothing for the name of Jesus, but you wouldn't know that by listening to them talk. Nobody's going to talk that way. But if we want a perfect church, we're going to have to leave, right? The, the, I mean, the, the church across town might be perfect until I show up there. Again, we, 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 aren't, we aren't trying to be wicked. That's, it's not laissez-faire. It's not who cares. It's not just let's... We aren't trying to struggle. You don't have to try to struggle. It just happens. We just want to recognize the inability Jesus is revealing to us here that we all have. We cannot see clearly enough. We can't be merciful or gracious or perfect enough in our investigations not to pull up weeds with weeds. Right? Church discipline is a process Jesus has given in the Bible whereby what marks a person as we have to remove them is not that they don't sin, it's that they don't repent. Right? That, that's, that's the marker. That's when you say, you know what, I, I don't know if you're real or not. Why? Because I'm not perfect? No, because you won't repent. So you, you have to go. We have to, we have to toss you out in hopes that that will bring you back. Like it's always restorative. That's the goal of it, to, to, to wake you up so that you'll come back. Christians repent. They're repenters. 
When you don't repent, you're acting like you're not a Christian. That's how much repentance describes the Christian. If you're not doing it, the Bible says the church can't know whether or not you're for real. That's amazing. We don't get that knowledge from you not ever messing up. We get that knowledge from each other not repenting. Not being willing to say, you know what, it is possible that I'm a wretch who won't repent of my sin. I need to repent right now. Right? When that isn't there, that's when, that's when Jesus says, now you remove the person. That's amazing. That's amazing. Look, look, look in verse 25. Look at, look at this. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Jesus, the master, is never sleeping. The servants slept. Which is why they didn't know the difference. They didn't even know it happened until the plants came up. They were clueless until it was visible. Jesus, however, has complete insight. He sees everything. Therefore, we leave all of that ultimately to Him. The weeds coming up with the wheat caught the servants by surprise. It did not catch the Master by surprise. Nothing surprises our God. The Master in this story instantly knows why there are weeds among the wheat. There's no speculation. He's not alarmed. He saw it. He didn't stop it from happening. Think about that. He didn't stop it from happening. So, beloved, God has His purposes for wheat and weeds growing together. He has His purposes. We do not want to make it our mission to stop something God sees and chooses not to stop. Now, that's hard. But I think it's important for the American church in particular that is always willing to go on a crusade to stop things that the sovereign God could stop in a second if he wanted to and has not done it. While the servants slept, the master allowed the enemy to do this and by doing so, the enemy has been used by God to accomplish his purpose. That's interesting. Again, Satan is ultimately just a tool in the hand of Almighty God. One of the reasons why we don't pull up weeds before the harvest is that plants sharing the same soil, even in nature, will have their roots so intertwined that if you uproot one, you might pull up others with it. Daniel Emery Price asks, could it be, could it be that Jesus wants our roots and lives that intimately intertwined? It must be so in some way, beloved. Thus the parable, right? For now, God wants both wheat and weeds growing up together. Don't stop that, is what the parable is saying. Don't stop it. We're meant to rub up against what we'd rather not be close to. And sometimes it's our goal to make sure we keep away the people we don't want to be close to. We all do that in... in, in different areas of our lives it's, it's it's a serious issue when we do it in the church we're we're meant to be on some level so close to the weeds assuming of course that we're wheat shall we read the parable <laughs> what the ultimate assumption is i'm wheat that's the that's, you just read it I, yeah i'm the wheat in that story and and, and i mean, I mean if, if you believe in christ you are absolutely the wheat nothing to be ashamed of just Understand that we judge with our eyes. We are quick to judge. So the alt, it's just, yeah, I'm, I'm the wheat here. Other people might be weeds. I better, I better, I guess I better not pull them up. We better hope nobody tries to pull us up. Right? We're meant to rub up against what we'd rather not be close to. 
We're meant to be so close to the weeds that if they were pulled up, we'd get pulled up too. That's not only grace for them. That's grace for us. God has designed it so that we always have the opportunity to extend the freedom and love and mercy that's been granted to us, to others, that Christ also cares for so deeply. So yes, one day, weeds will be burned up. But in the here and now, they are objects of mercy. That's, that, that, that's, that's a powerful truth. And we can't clean ourselves up by removing everything dirty from our presence. And that, that's pagan thinking. Right? That's, it's, it's, it's pagan thinking. If, if I remove everything from me, because the Bible says don't love the world or the things in the world. So, so if I pull out of the world and remove everything evil from me, I'll, I'll be okay. If, if I pull my kids away from everything evil, they'll be okay. If I pull everything away, if I just get out of the world, yeah, you, you, Lot did that. Lot found a cave away from all the trouble. It, it doesn't, it doesn't work. It, Again, it's, it's, it's the pagan idea of sec, of secular and sacred. Right? That, that doesn't come from the Bible. That, that, you, you can't, the problem, the reason we sin is not external, it's internal. Right? It's, it's internal. Jesus talks, if we would just listen to our Master, it's not what goes into the body that defiles a person, it's what comes out of a person. So that should be okay. So that should change our complete understanding about how we look at the world around us. We can't clean ourselves up by just removing everything dirty and bad from our presence. Again, that doesn't mean go wallow in it. It's a simple statement of fact. The cure for the evil inside of us is not to remove everything bad from outside of us away. Nor will we contaminate our purity just by being in proximity to what might be weeds. Jesus became a human being to save human beings. He came that far without ever sinning. So, well, that's Jesus. And you, believer, are in Christ. You are His body. God's grace has deliberately set up His kingdom so that we will not be able to stray very far from sinners, from weeds. Let us reflect that because beloved God's wheat should know better than anyone else what it is to be a weed right we should know better than anyone else look at listen to Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 listen to God's word and you these people he's described in chapter 1 as elect and predestined and sealed and all these things and you same people were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Listen to John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Born of God. Not born of self. Born of God. In other words, 
No one is born wheat. Right? That's what the scripture teaches. Nobody's born wheat. Everyone is born dead in sins, children of wrath, hopeless people, in need of adoption. There are two categories. Children of wrath, the devil, weeds. And children of God, wheat. But all are born as the former. Everyone. No exceptions. Which means a transfer must take place. John 1 reveals we're powerless to do it ourselves. Right? We always think we're the, we're the source of our salvation. No, we're, we're the result of his salvation. Not, you're not born of your own will. I, 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 hate to, I hate to break that. We're not born of our own free will. We're born of God. Just read the text. Don't, don't take my word for it. Read the text. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, nor is he able to receive him, them because they're folly to him. So the natural person hears the gospel and says, that's foolishness. It's stupid. It's the most ignorant thing I've ever heard. What a fairy tale. What a joke. That's what the natural will is capable of doing with the gospel. So we're not born of the will of the flesh. It's right there. We're born of God. So everyone is born a weed. Everyone. Nobody is born wheat. A transfer has to take place and we can't do it ourselves. There must be a miracle. There must be mercy. There must be love. You see, we think because we judge by appearances that we technically got ourselves saved. No, grace acted upon us. This isn't, this shouldn't be difficult. Right? It's, it's, it's right in front of us. There must be a miracle for us to get saved. Do I, do you still believe miracles happen today? Every time a person gets saved. Dead people don't take medicine when you offer it to them. The Bible doesn't describe us as sick in our sins. It describes us as dead in our sins. Dead. Here, go to the cemetery, preach the gospel. Nobody's coming forward. It's the same thing. Unless, unless what happens? Lazarus, come forth. Without that, there, there is no salvation. So, Everybody's born a weed. The gospel is how God, the, the gospel is the life-giving word of Jesus saying, come forth. That's what the gospel does. It gives life and people believe on him. So th- there's, in other words, there's nothing to take credit for in the fact that you are wheat. All glory, all credit, all cause goes to Christ. There has to be a miracle. There has to be mercy. There has to be love. There has to be grace for people to get saved. Not Our assistance plus grace, grace to save, to raise from the dead. Listen to Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Paul writing, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes weeds become wheat. That's the biblical reality. But that doesn't happen because reeds try really hard until they become wheat. A weed can't become wheat, right? A plant can't try really hard to become wheat. Nor does do, do weeds become wheat because the church is diligent about rooting the weeds out. So we can put away that the whole idea of evaluation and assessment. We are in need of constant reminders that transformation only happens by the grace of God. It happens... Because the church stays diligent to do the task it was given to do 
proclaim the gospel, the good news of the finished work of Christ that turns weeds into wheat. That is the power of God for salvation. Nothing we do is the power of God for salvation. We were all weeds once. Don't ever forget this. We were all weeds once. If we are wheat now, it's because of God's grace. It's because a transfer has happened. It's because we've been delivered and adopted and rescued because of something that happened to us, not because of something we or anyone else did. And one would think that this would make us the most generous and gracious people on earth who are very slow to pull up a weed, since after all we used to be weeds and we know what it's like. We should just be so overwhelmed by the mercy and love of God on us that our default would be to extend grace, not to withhold it. Because we think someone else is unworthy of it. Do we even know what we're doing when our default posture is always, I don't, you know, I, I don't want them to think that like I approve of their sin. How do you explain Jesus coming to earth? Did he approve of anyone's sin? No. But you would think if coming close meant that you did, he wouldn't have done that. The knowledge of who we once were and the kingdom in which we used to live should keep us from turning our noses up at those around us. And again, well, you know, we we don't want to get soft on sin, right, as long as we're talking about somebody else's. We, We have no problem being soft on our own sin. We're really soft on our own sin. When our gut reaction to extending grace and mercy to others is, I don't want them to think I approve of their sin. Why do, why do we think that? Why do we think that me being close to you means I approve of your sin automatically? Well, that's what people will think. I don't care what people will think. Right? Why, why would we care what Pharisees think about our behavior? Why? Jesus would just... I feel sorry sometimes for the Pharisees that tried to mouth off. It, it, he, would, he would just bury them to the point where it was almost humorous if we didn't see ourselves in them so much. When we, well, I don't want them to think I approve of their sin. Then that may, Again, all we're showing there is that we think Jesus saved us because we did take our sins seriously enough. For him to be kind to us, we should, we should just stop that. We, we should stop that. All the talk of grace does not mean we don't tell the truth about the gospel. That God does not deny himself. Grace and truth are not opposed to each other. It's not like if there's grace present, it must mean that you're, you're fudging on truth. No. No. Right? Well, you're being gracious. You, you can't possibly be telling the truth. Yeah. Jesus did it. Right, Jesus did it. Grace and truth are not opposed to each other. They both come from God. It's not like if one is, one is taking place, the other must be absent. Again, how would you explain Jesus? We, let us stop comparing. Let us stop unrighteously judging, if that's what we're doing. Let us stop thinking that we need to do a work that Jesus has expressly commanded us not to do. Beloved, we will not fully purify the church. It won't happen. It's not been given to us to do. And the church universal will not be purified until the harvest. Until Jesus sends out his reapers and the work gets completed. It's not going to get done ahead of time. 
by our effort and, and clarity. It's, it's, that's not the way God has designed it to work. Jesus will make the church pure. There's no question. You and I have been called to proclaim the gospel. So, are there weeds among us? Yes, always. Jesus says there are. Right? He, he says there are. But, you know, the wheat looks pretty rough right now, too. So let's not try to separate the two right now. It, it isn't harvest time. God hasn't sent out the reapers yet, so let, let's lay down the scythe. As it says in the book I was reading, with it, with a scythe, we don't look like Jesus, we look like the grim reaper. Beloved, we, we've not been given a scythe. We've been given a message. We've been given a message. And proclaiming it does not mean that is the whole truth. Right? Proclaiming it does not mean, oh, we're not telling the whole truth. If you're preaching the gospel, you're preaching the truth. The biblical gospel. If you're preaching some man-made gospel, some compromised, watered-down gospel, then no, you're not telling the truth. But if you're preaching that Christ died to save sinners, and if you come to Him for forgiveness, you will be saved, you're preaching the gospel. You have nothing to be ashamed of if that's what you're proclaiming to the people in your life and in your circle that you know don't believe in Him. We've been given the gospel. We wield the gospel. Right? We don't kill. We die so that others might live in the way of our Master. This is who Jesus was. It's who Jesus is. And it's who He will be forever for us. For all those that come to Him for all those that come to Him. So let us not withhold what we've been so freely given. Right? We, we just don't have the clarity to know when to withhold it. If, if it needs to be, the Spirit will work. Walk by faith. Walk by the Spirit. Don't try to get out ahead. Walk by the Spirit. Stay in the lane of the Gospel. Right? Jesus will bring all things to a close. There's nothing to worry about. When all is said and done, there will be no red in the ledger. It will all be taken care of. Let us trust in Christ. Let us trust His Word. Let us trust His Gospel to do what He said it has the power to do. Right? And if, if, you, if you are in this room tonight, if you're here and you know you don't know Jesus, you must understand He, he will not turn you away. Right? God, God is not looking at people saying, uh, that's too far, that's too much. You've basically been pretty good, you're welcome with me. No, He came to save both of those people because in the math of heaven, the horrible person and the pretty decent person, they're both as far away from God as the other is. Only Jesus can bridge the gap, but He will, He will. He will. This is who we worship. This is what we're founded on. Let us rejoice in Him. I'm going to pray. In closing here, as we sing our last song, it's page 407, by the way. Page 407, if you're here tonight, if you need to come. If you're here tonight, it's such a strange thing to say. Obviously, you're here tonight. But if you need to come and pray, please come and pray. I'll be here in the front if you're in need to pray at all. Let me close this. Father, we thank you so much for 
your son Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for your perfect word. It never fails. It never falls short. I pray, Lord, that um, for those of us that, that believe in you, Father, that as we go from this place, we would be hungry to understand more, to, to, to know you more through this word, know who you are, what you're like. And for that, we must look to Christ. And so, Father, we pray for your grace. And I ask, Lord, for those that might be here tonight that, that don't know you at all, Lord, that you would call them, that you would bring them to life with the word of the gospel, that, Father, they would come believing on you. And, Lord, you will remove all the bondage of the past and set them free. And so we ask for this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.